0: Testing 123. Testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Dumbing Down Revelation. It is now 2018, which officially marks my 40th anniversary as a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. It was in June of 1978 that I joined the church, fresh out of high school as an 18 year old. And when I joined, the LDS Church. It was a wonderful time. New vistas were opened to me. I was taught three primary things that demonstrated that the LDS Church was the true church of God on the earth today. The first was that miracles had not ceased in the Old and the New Testament, but they continued to occur today on a regular basis in the LDS Church, primarily among the leadership of the church. But it was not restricted only to the leadership, even the lay members of the LDS Church could experience miracles in their lives, just as miracles had been performed amongst the early followers of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The second thing I was taught was that the LDS Church held the priesthood power of God, and that by virtue of that priesthood power, healings could be performed today, just as they had been performed in the New Testament. And finally, I was taught that revelation had not ceased with the Bible, but that God continued to speak to his authorized servants today, and that those authorized servants were found in, exclusively found in, I might add, the LDS Church. The leaders of the Church, especially the prophet and president of the Church, received regular revelation and directly from God Himself. It was generally understood by me and other members of the church that the apostles met regularly with Jesus Christ on the fourth floor of the temple during their weekly meetings. Maybe not every week Jesus showed up, but very frequently, and in fact, being an apostle meant having a personal visitation by Jesus Christ so that they could bear their apostolic witness of Jesus Christ to the world. But this revelation was not the sole provenance of leaders of the church, even the members of the church, even down to the investigators of the church and the newly baptized, which is the position that I was in in June of 1978, could receive revelation directly from God, personal revelation. These were amazing teachings that I was receiving, and I believed them. And perhaps largely because I believed what I was being taught, I had a number of, Of remarkable spiritual experiences between the time i was baptized in june of 78 for the next year and a half till i went on my mission in november of 1979 and even after i went on my mission i had at least one extraordinary spiritual experience so not only did i believe these in theory i actually experienced them in what to me was my reality and continues to be to this day my reality. But what I have witnessed in the last 40 years is a continual dumbing down of miracles by the LDS Church, a continuing dumbing down of priesthood blessings by the LDS Church, and a continuing dumbing down of the apostolic witness of Jesus Christ. And I have talked about the dumbing down of those different categories of things in prior podcasts. For instance, the LDS Church has dumbed down miracles to the point where stories are told in General Conference about a pre-med college student finding a quarter on the road while bicycling home so that he could buy some chicken. This now qualifies as a miracle in the LDS Church, sufficiently miraculous to be recounted in General Conference. Bill Real and I, in April of 2017, did a review of the April 2017 General Conference in which two miracle stories were told. One involving missionaries in Japan being saved from an earthquake by the inspiration of the mission president, We took that apart and found out that actually, that was not a miracle story at all when closely examined. We also looked at a second miracle story told in the same conference about pictures hung on the wall of an LDS chapel being saved from a burning building in Southern California by the intervention of God on non-members. When we looked at that, we also found that that miracle story evaporated. And finally, of course, there is the miracle story that was told just last summer by Elder Holland to a group of new mission presidents regarding a member of the church who joined the Hell's Angels Club, traveled across the country, and then was miraculously contacted and converted by his younger brother whom he had never met before. I did an episode on this story as well. After Elder Holland came out one month after telling the story, and had to retract the story because he had been contacted by members of the family to tell him that all the miraculous aspects of that story simply did not happen. So this is how the LDS Church has dumbed down miracles. The LDS Church has dumbed down priesthood blessings. I have devoted one episode to that specifically regarding Elder Bednar's talk about having faith not to be healed. The stories we hear over and over and over again in conference are about people receiving priesthood blessings and not being healed, but rather dying. It has gotten so bad that Elder Bednar gave a talk in which he suggests that having faith not to be healed is actually greater than having faith to be healed. As far as the apostolic witness of Jesus Christ, that too has been dumbed down. You will recall that in the Boise rescue where Elder Oaks appeared, along with Elder Turley from the church historian's department, he made it clear that the apostolic witness of Jesus Christ is not, repeat not, that they have seen Jesus, but rather that they are simply a witness of his name, his plan, and his priesthood. That's it. And now, to complete this scenario, the LDS Church has also dumbed down revelation i think it is quite clear that the current leadership of the church does not receive revelation i have touched on that in prior podcasts what i want to focus on tonight is how the lds church has dumbed down personal revelation out of one side of their mouth lds leaders say that all members of the church are permitted and indeed encouraged to receive personal revelation for themselves from the holy ghost which moroni chapter 10 Tells us, will bear witness of the truth of all things. But out of the other side of its mouth, the LDS Church has dumbed down the concept of personal revelation to the point where it is virtually meaningless. Now, here I want to return to the face-to-face presentation with Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks from November 19th of 2017, because in their answers to three different questions, they set forth what is really the current position of the LDS Church on the subject of personal revelation. And this begins with the very first question that is asked. That question is, how do I come to know and truly believe for myself? This question is from a young single adult who wants to know how it is that he or she gains a personal testimony of the truth of the church. And here is that question as it was asked at the face-to-face presentation. Play the tape. Our first question is about gaining and keeping a testimony. Um, A young adult from Utah asks, how do I truly come to know and believe for myself the things that I have been taught? I pray for answers and a confirmation of the Spirit, but my answers don't seem to come. Now, this is a very good question, and it goes to the heart of Mormonism, which encourages investigators to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder its message, and to pray for themselves to find out whether it is true with the promise given that if they do so with sincerity of heart, the Holy Ghost will bear witness to them that the Book of Mormon is true. But what Elder Ballard says in response is startling. What Elder Ballard wants to make sure his audience understands up front is that in response to their prayers, they are not going to hear voices and they are not going to have visions. Here is what he says.
1: And then in those quiet moments, you you don't hear voices and you're not going to have a vision. That's very unusual.
0: I don't know about you, but the first thing that came into my mind when I heard Elder Ballard say that was that these are the words of a man who has never heard the voice of God and a man who has never had a vision from God, and yet he is one of the senior apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is something that you would expect to hear only from somebody who had not received any visions. And I suppose this strikes me a little bit worse than it might otherwise, because one of the things that happened to me during the year and a half between the time I was baptized and the time I went on my mission is that I did experience a vision. Now I'm not going to go into detail about what that vision consisted of at this time, but I may do so in a future episode if there is any interest. But because I had that experience, when I was a new member of the church, it struck me as very odd that a senior member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which is what Elder Ballard is, would be saying that we should not be expecting to have any visions. Actually, he says, you're not going to have any visions, that those are very rare. Well, why is it that he's telling me this when I experienced one when I was a new member? In addition to this visionary experience that I'm talking about, I had also what could be considered a visionary experience as I prayed my way through the Book of Mormon. And let me just take a minute here, if I might, to describe this experience to you. Here is how I gained my testimony of the Book of Mormon. I took the missionary discussions back in May and June of 1978. The missionaries told me to read the Book of Mormon, to pray about it, what everybody here has heard, and they told me that if I did so with a sincere heart, that God would manifest the truth of it unto me by the power of the Holy Ghost, and they told me that that would be manifest by a burning in my bosom. Well, I didn't know exactly what they meant by that, but I did know that the Book of Mormon was a very big book. And it was hard for me to get started reading the Book of Mormon, so I read other things related to the Church instead of the Book of Mormon. Then what happened is that my best friend, whose name is Bruce, was going to get his patriarchal blessing. And he told me how excited he was. He told me about what a patriarchal blessing was, and he suggested that maybe I should get a patriarchal blessing too. Well, I thought that was a good idea, so I went to our bishop, Bishop Murphy and I talked to him. I remember sitting in his office talking to him as a new member about getting my patriarchal blessing. I was 18, so I was certainly of age to get it, but Bishop Murphy wanted to test my knowledge of the gospel and see if he felt I was ready to get my patriarchal blessing. I remember the first question he asked me, as sort of a pop quiz, was if I could name the four standard works of the church. Well, I thought this was an easy one. I started right off the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, and I started realizing that I was going to come up with five instead of four because, of course, the Bible is one standard work together, but I had split it up into the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I started hesitating, and Bishop Murphy smiled at me, and then he asked me if I had read the Book of Mormon, and I said I had not, and he said, I tell you what, you read the Book of Mormon and come back to me, and then we'll talk about you getting a patriarchal blessing. So that was what I needed. I needed that carrot of having a patriarchal blessing to get me really, really interested in reading the Book of Mormon. I had graduated from high school, I was working during the day, and what I did was I set up a time in the evening when I would come home, I would have dinner, I would go into my room, and I would read the Book of Mormon for a couple of hours every night. And that was my plan that I was going to do until I finished the Book of Mormon. Now, I'm not a fast reader, and it took me a couple of months in order to complete this, but I managed to accomplish it. And this is what I did. I would start out By getting down on my knees and praying to God to let me know by the power of the Holy Ghost if the Book of Mormon was true, and then I did what the missionary who taught me told me to do, which is as I was reading to keep in the back of my mind the question, could any man have written this book unaided by the power of God? I did this same procedure every evening when I read from the Book of Mormon, and this is what I experienced. Well, the first thing is that I did not experience what I expected to experience. Because the missionaries had told me I was going to feel this burning in my bosom, whatever that meant. I did not feel a burning in my bosom. I did not feel anything in my bosom. Instead, what I felt was in my head. I had, like most people, lived my life with two eyes in front of my head. I could see in front of me. I can't see to the side of me except barely with peripheral vision, and I certainly cannot see what's behind me. But as I read the Book of Mormon, it was as if The walls of my head all fell down and I could see to infinity in all directions at once. Now, I couldn't actually see any particular thing out there, but I had the impression of being able to see in all directions infinitely at the same time. And this did not happen just one time or just two times when I was reading the Book of Mormon. It happened every single night that I read from the Book of Mormon, from the beginning to the end, over the period of two months. And I remember having the impression when I was done with this experience that I could not remember a lot about what had actually happened in the Book of Mormon. I couldn't tell you the names and the stories and the different sermons that had been preached with any degree of detail. But the one thing that I felt that I knew was that every word in that book was the Word of God because the Spirit of God had testified to me in this strange and unusual, and for me, completely unexpected, manifestation. So, bringing this back now to the face-to-face devotional, this is why when Elder Ballard says, you're not going to have experiences like visions, and you're not going to hear voices, you can perhaps better understand how it makes me feel. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on the significant spiritual experience I had on my mission, but I will say that that involved hearing the voice of God and the voice of God directed me specifically to a young man to contact to teach the gospel to. Once again, I'll go into detail on that in the future, but I don't want to get too far away from what it is I'm focusing on tonight. So Elder Ballard hit both of these things when he says, now you're not going to hear voices and you're not going to see visions. Those things are very rare. And not only that, as I reflected on it further, when Elder Ballard says, you're not going to hear voices or have visions. What is he doing to faith? Is he increasing faith in the members that they will hear voices, or that they will see visions, or is he undermining faith? And by sending this message, is he making it less likely that members of the church will see visions or hear voices? I can virtually guarantee you that if I had joined the church, and if I had perceived the church's teaching, that I was not going to hear any voices, that I was not going to see any visions, that I was not going to receive any significant personal revelation, I would not have received any significant personal revelation. But because it seems apparent that Elder Ballard has not received these types of personal revelation, he does not expect others to be able to receive them. And when he tells others they are not going to receive them, why would they seek them or expect them? And if they do not seek them or expect them, odds are they are not going to receive them. Here I want to read to you a passage from the book It by Stephen King. I read this book back when it came out in 1986, and recently a new movie was made of the book, which I went to see at the theater. I thought they did a pretty good job, but this led me to go ahead and buy a paperback version and reread this book, which I'm currently in. It's 1,200 pages long. I'm up to page 900 now. It's taken me several weeks to get there. Once again, I'm still not a very fast reader, but I came across a passage which really struck me in this regard and I read it a couple of nights ago when I was in the process of preparing the material for this podcast and I want to read it to you you can find this on page 908 and what's going on at this part of the book is that this is being written by one of the characters his name is Mike if you saw the movie he's the black kid in the movie he's one of the seven who are in the losers Club part of the book is back when they were kids in 1958 And the other part of the book is now that they're grown up. It's 27 years later. It's 1985 in the book. And Mike is the guy who never left the little town of Derry. He stays in Derry. He becomes a librarian. He does a lot of research on the city of Derry and finds out a lot of disturbing things that happen every 27 years or so. And what's going on in the book at this point is that the murders of little children are beginning to happen again, which lets him know that it, this evil presence that lurks under the city of Derry, is coming around again, and he's going to have to contact his six other friends, who almost killed it 27 years before in 1958, that they need to come back, because they all made a promise back in 1958 that if this it creature ever came back, that they would all come back and try and finish the job. Okay, now having said all of that, here's the passage, and hopefully it will make some sense now that I've given you that background. So this is what Mike is writing about, that these murders are starting, and that now he needs to reach out and contact the other six friends of his that they need to come back. Here's what he writes. It's sort of a personal journal here. He writes, yes, I think that's the secret here. And if I make the calls, when he's talking about calling the other six friends, and if I make the calls, how much will they remember? How much will they believe? Enough to end this horror once and for all, or only enough to get them killed? This is why he's delaying calling them because he doesn't want to bring them back if it's just going to get him killed. And yet they made this promise and yet kids are starting to get killed in strange and gruesome ways. And it's looking more and more like he's going to have to make this call because definitely it is back in town. He goes on. They are being called. I know that much. Each murder in this news cycle has been a call. We almost killed it twice. And in the end, we drove it deep in its warren of tunnels and stinking rooms under the city. But I think it knows another secret. Although it may be immortal, or almost so, we are not. It had only to wait until the act of faith. See, faith is going to come in here now. And faith is going to play into what it is that Mike is realizing about it, and about their ability to kill it, and how their ability to kill it when they were kids was probably greater than their ability to kill it now. Why? Because now they've grown up. Now they've lost the ability to have the faith that they could kill it. It had only to wait until the act of faith, which made us potential monster killers, as well as sources of power, had become Impossible. So it only had to wait until the act of faith became impossible. 27 years, he writes. Perhaps a period of sleep for it, as short and refreshing as an afternoon nap would be for us. And when it awakes, it is the same. But a third of our lives has gone by. And here's the money quote. Our perspectives have narrowed because now they're grown up. Our perspectives have narrowed. Our faith in the magic, which makes magic possible, has worn off like the shine on a new pair of shoes after a hard day's walking. Let me repeat that last part. Our faith in the magic, which makes magic possible, has worn off like the shine on a new pair of shoes after a hard day's walking walking. So that's the end of the quote from It, page 908. And I bring it up here because it's the faith in the magic that makes the magic possible. And I think that that is one of the truths that Stephen King sought to capture in his novel. And it goes on and on and on, believe me. But this is something that was important to him. And I think that's so because he refers to it in his dedication to the book. Here's what he says in the dedication to the book. Now he dedicates this book to his children, who are young at the time, and this is what he says, Kids, fiction is the truth inside the lie, and the truth of this fiction is simple enough. The magic exists. I'm going to read that once again, because when I was reading it the second time, the first thing I read was The Dedication, and when I read The Dedication, it resonated with me. And one of the reasons it resonated with me is because it's so perfectly described why it is that I have come to the point in my life where I can consider the Book of Mormon to be scripture without considering it to be historical. I can consider the Book of Mormon to be true without considering it to have actually happened in real time and space, with real characters playing out real events in real history. And that's one of the things that's so wonderful about this quote, is it recognizes that truth can be told inside of a lie. Once again, the quote, Kids, fiction is the truth inside the lie. And the truth of this fiction is simple enough. The magic exists. In a future podcast, I'm going to talk in more detail about why it is that I can consider the Book of Mormon to be scripture and true without believing that it is real or that it really happened. But for now, I want to go back to my subject relating to the dumbing down of personal revelation. Once again, Elder Balor tells his audience they're not going to hear voices, they're not going to see visions. And here I think it's helpful to contrast this, not just with my experience, because that's just me but rather with Joseph Smith's experience. I've studied Joseph Smith to some extent. I've read all of his writings. I've read all of the words that have been captured by his scribes and others who took notes when he was speaking. And the thing that strikes me is that Joseph Smith never told his followers that they would not hear voices. He never told his followers that they would not see visions. Instead, what he said was, I advise all to go on to perfection and search deeper and deeper into the mysteries of godliness. That's from Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 364. In the Book of Mormon that he produced, First Nephi chapter 10, verse 19, it says this, For he that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost, as well in these times as in times of old, and as well in times of old as in times to come. Wherefore, the course of the Lord is one eternal round. You see, this is the Mormonism that I was brought into. All the possibilities of personal revelation were presented to me as actualities. It was a new sun in my sky, shining brightly upon me. What I did not realize at the time was that new sun was two inches above the horizon, and it was not coming up, rather, the sun was going down. And it was going down to the point where, 40 years later, it is completely down, it is basically completely night out, and now the church is dumbing down personal revelation to the point where it is meaningless. So you can see that not only is there a huge difference between what the church teaches today about personal revelation and my own personal experience as a young boy in the church, but it also departs drastically with what Joseph Smith taught. On page 191 of Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, he said this, The best way to obtain truth and wisdom is not to ask it from books, but to go to God in prayer and obtain divine teaching. On page 296, he said this, It is my meditation all the day and more than my meat and drink to know how I shall make the saints of God comprehend the visions that roll like an overflowing surge before my mind. Doctrine and Covenant section 121 verse 26 says this, The things of God are of deep import and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens, and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. Thou must commune with God. And how interesting, as I read this verse right now, it comes to me that not only is Joseph Smith teaching, this is the way things are with personal revelation for all of his members in the original church and contrasting that with the dumbing down of revelation in the modern church, Joseph Smith actually says in this quote that unless you do this, you cannot lead a soul unto salvation. There will be no salvation unless the members of the church are doing what he says here. Let me read that last part again. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation— Must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. Thou must commune with God. And finally, another thought that comes to me as I'm reading this is that when he talks about contemplating the broad expanse of eternity, that in words probably better than anything else I have ever read describes the experience that I had when I read and prayed my way through the Book of Mormon when I was 18 years old. One last quote from Joseph Smith on this subject where he makes it very clear, I'm not the guy who receives all the revelation and you just have to take my word for it. He wanted to encourage and invite all of his followers to receive the same revelations that he received. In fact, one could even say that this concept is taught in the Book of Mormon where Lehi receives the dream of the tree of life and Nephi, his son, goes forward. And he doesn't have to take Lehi's word for it. Instead, Nephi prays to God, and Nephi receives his vision of the tree of life. He sees the same thing that his father saw. But going back to Joseph Smith, this is what he said, June 27, 1839. You can find this in the History of the Church, Volume 3, page 380. Here is the quote, God hath not revealed anything to Joseph. Here he's speaking of himself in the third person. God hath not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the twelve, and even the least saint may know all things as fast as he is able to bear them. For the day must come when no man need say to his neighbor, Know ye the Lord? For all shall know him from the least to the greatest. This was Joseph Smith's perspective on the subject of personal revelation and what a contrast it is to what the leaders of the church are teaching today as manifest in the face-to-face presentation from last November with Elder Ballard, and Elder Oaks. So now that Elder Ballard has made it clear that when you pray to get a testimony, you're not going to be seeing any visions and you're not going to be hearing any voices, how does he describe revelations from the Holy Ghost? How does he describe the receipt of personal revelation? Well, the way he describes it in one word is feelings. What he says is this, things you feel in your heart is how God answers prayers. Here is his answer in his own words play the tape.
1: But really the things you feel within your heart uh, are the way Heavenly Father ultimately answers, answers prayers.
0: So now that Elder Ballard has dumbed down Revelation to simply your own feelings, question number three comes up and it is the question that we could see coming a mile away. And it is a question that we hear over and over in the church. And in fact, This is what the apostles say. They hear this question all the time. Question number three is, how can I differentiate between the Holy Ghost and my own feelings? Okay, so her question was, how can I differentiate between the Holy Ghost and my own thoughts and feelings? Well, this is the natural question. Once the leadership of the church has dumbed Revelation down to the point where it is feelings, how do I tell when I'm getting Revelation from God, And when it's just my own feelings? Well, this is a difficult question, but Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard are up to the challenge. The first thing that Elder Oaks says as a sign and a key to knowing if a feeling is coming from God versus a feeling coming from inside ourselves and being self-generated is that we should not urgently want the Holy Ghost to confirm something
1: we already believe. Play the tape. This is a question we wrestle with all of our life. It's well to remember that uh, the scriptures teach us that inspiration comes in the still, small voice. It doesn't come in the urgent impulses of doing what we want to do and reaching out in bias for a confirmation to our our personal opinion. I have uh, found it helpful to use that test of bias when I'm trying to sort out the difference between uh, a desire to be confirmed in what I want to do already and and what the Lord may want me to do. And if I get an impression to do something I don't want to do, I think that's a lot more authentic than to get or to report an impression that I've been confirmed in what I wanted to do anyway.
0: Now, I think I get what Elder Oaks is saying. He's saying that If a prompting is something different than what we already believe, or it's different than what we already want to do, then it's less likely to be our own personal feeling and more likely to be from God, because our own personal feeling would be to believe what we already believe, and our own personal feeling would be more likely to do what we already want to do. Therefore, if we get a prompting to do something different, that's more likely to be from God. I think I understand what he's saying. While I think that may be good advice on the whole, how does it play into our church's insistence that members obtain a testimony of the Book of Mormon. And here I'm speaking primarily of the vast majority of members of the church who are not converts, who have grown up in the church, who have been raised in the church to believe that it's true, and are yet challenged to read the Book of Mormon and pray about it to find out if the church is true. But if you're a member of the church and you're praying to find out if the Book of Mormon is true, isn't that exactly what Elder Oaks is advising against? In other words, a member of the church who already believes the Church is true, is going to be predisposed to believe that the Book of Mormon is true. So, therefore, the feelings they will get about the Book of Mormon will be more likely to corroborate their personal feelings rather than be promptings from the Holy Ghost, at least according to this test by Elder Oaks. Another point I might make to Elder Oaks if he is listening is that his continued and oft-repeated stance on the subject of homosexuality is probably feelings that he gets that confirm what he already believes is true. In other words, Elder Oaks has made it very clear that he believes that homosexuality is sinful. And the question then that I have is that if he continues to get those feelings that it's sinful, is that just corroborating what he already believes? And is that therefore more likely to be generated from within himself as opposed to if he got a feeling that, hey, God made homosexuals homosexual the same way he made heterosexuals heterosexual? It's not a matter of choice. Therefore, it is not sinful conduct. If Elder Oaks got that kind of impression, which contradicts his current beliefs, would that not, by his own test, be more likely to be revelation from God than his continued insistence that homosexuality is sinful? Going back to this idea of personal revelation being dumbed down to being nothing more than feelings that are really virtually indistinguishable from the feelings that we have within ourselves that are generated from ourselves as opposed to feelings that come from outside of us, and are coming from God, Elder Ballard states that the Holy Ghost is the teacher of all things. Here's what he says. Play the tape.
1: And so, the the power of the Holy Ghost, who is the teacher of all things.
0: So my question about this is this, if the Holy Ghost is the teacher of all things, as Elder Ballard says, and as indeed the LDS Church teaches, how is the Holy Ghost supposed to teach anything? if the only way it can communicate is by feelings. The Book of Mormon was not produced by feelings. The Revelations and the Doctrine and Covenants were not produced by feelings. The Joseph Smith translation of the Bible was not produced by feelings. Actual information was communicated from God to produce these things. At least, that was the position of Joseph Smith, and it continues to be the position of the Church in relation to Joseph Smith and how these different documents were produced. As I say, actual information was communicated by Revelation to Joseph Smith in order to produce the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Joseph Smith Translation of the Bible. These were not just feelings that were confirming that something somebody else said was true. And yet, this is the point we have come to in the LDS Church, where what the leaders of the Church are telling us, and what Elder Oaks will make a point of highlighting with crystal clarity, is that there is only one purpose for personal revelation. And that purpose is to confirm for the member that what the leaders have said is true. I do also have to note that since it is now the year 2018, it is another anniversary. It is the 40th anniversary of my being baptized into the LDS Church, but it is also the 100th anniversary of Doctrine and Covenants section 138. This is the last section in the Doctrine and Covenants and it was the last section received chronologically that is in the Doctrine and Covenants. It was received 100 years ago in 1918, which makes it a full century since any piece of revelation was received that was then included in the Doctrine and Covenants, which means there has been a full century since the LDS Church has produced a canonized revelation. It has been a century of no revelation by the leaders of the church it has been a century of darkness think about it in spite of the fact that we have 15 men at the head of this church all of whom are sustained as prophets of God during the last 100 years not one scrap of revelation has been received by any of them now I have used that expression scrap of revelation before in prior podcasts. There's a reason that I use that expression and it is because it is the same expression that Joseph Smith used when chastising other religious leaders of his day for criticizing him for being a prophet when they themselves could not produce any revelation. He said they could not receive one scrap of revelation. And how was it that people who could not receive one scrap of revelation from God took it upon themselves to criticize Joseph Smith who did receive revelation from God. Here's the quote, History of the Church, Volume 2, page 18. But we ask, says Joseph Smith, but we ask, does it remain for a people who never had faith enough to call down one scrap of revelation from heaven, and for all they have now are indebted to the faith of another people who lived hundreds and thousands of years before them, does it remain for them to say how much God has spoken and how much he has not spoken? It's a good question. That Joseph Smith raises. Unfortunately, it becomes a better question when it's applied to the current leadership of the church and the leadership of the church for the past hundred years. Joseph Smith is not only asking that question of the other religious leaders of the day, he ends up asking that question to the current leadership of the church that Joseph Smith himself founded. Now we get to Elder Oaks when he gives us another key as to how we can know whether our feelings are coming from God or from within ourselves, he says that if you get an impression that is contrary to the leaders of the church, it cannot be from the Holy Ghost.
1: Play the tape. Sure. And building on that, uh, if we get an impression contrary to the scriptures, to the commandments of God, to the teachings of his leaders, then we know that it can't be coming from from the Holy Ghost. Now, I was shocked to hear Elder Oaks
0: say this. I know that it has been the teaching of the church that I have encountered in different classes and in different church meetings, but here is Elder Oakes actually saying it. So, in synopsis, the message from our current church leaders is that we should not expect to receive revelation above and beyond our feelings. But those feelings may not contradict church leaders, or else it is coming from the wrong source what church leaders have done by this method is placed a king's x on revelation they are the only ones who can receive revelation the only revelation that members can receive is confirmatory revelation that what they are saying is true in contrast to what the current leaders are teaching is that the only revelation we can receive confirms that what they are teaching us is true Brigham Young had a different comment to make. It's a rather famous quote. It's important to bring it up now. It can be found in Discourses of Brigham Young, page 135. Here's what Brigham Young said. He did not say that we have to take the leader's word for it, and the only revelation we can receive is to confirm that what church leaders said is true. He said something quite different. Here's what Brigham Young said. I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God, whether they the leaders are led by him god i am fearful they settle down in a state of blind self-security let every man and woman know by the whispering of the spirit of god to themselves whether their leaders are walking in the path the lord dictates or not So, if Brigham Young had been on the stage with Elder Oaks during this young single adult face-to-face devotional, I think that the conversation might have been a little bit more animated and more interesting than it ended up being with Elder Ballard. In this way, confirmation bias has been established as a gospel principle for knowing the truth. If your bias that the church is true and the leaders are prophets is confirmed, then you know that revelation is coming from God. Amazingly, this is coming from the same man who just gave as a principle that if you're receiving a revelation that confirms what you already believe, then it is less likely to be from God than if it contradicts what you already believe. But consistency has never been Elder Oaks' hallmark. In fact, what Elder Oaks says here seems to be in contradiction to what he said back in General Conference in 2006. There he said that it is the apostle's job to teach the rules but it is up to the members if they want to have exceptions to those rules here is what he said there quote as a general authority this is elder oaks from 2006 as a general authority i have the responsibility to preach general principles when i do i don't try to define all the exceptions there are exceptions to some rules mark that there are exceptions to some rules for example we believe the commandment is not violated by killing pursuant to a lawful order in an armed conflict but don't ask me to give an opinion on your exception i only teach the general rules whether an exception applies to you is your responsibility you must work that out individually between you and the Lord. End of quote. So when Elder Oak said this back in 2006, it got some attention because it sounded like he was being kind of open minded here. That he's recognizing there are exceptions to rules, and he's just teaching the rule, but other people may have exceptions, and they may have valid exceptions, and they may be able to receive personal revelation about those exceptions because he says you must work that out individually between you and the Lord. That was 2006, but in 2017, Elder Oaks tells a story to illustrate his point in which he appears to reverse himself and say, no, you don't get to work out exceptions to the rules. We teach the rules, and you follow the rules, and there are no exceptions, and you don't get to work it out with the Lord. Otherwise... Your revelation that you got in working out the exception with the Lord is coming from the wrong source. Play the tape.
1: I had an experience once with uh, some members who sought my counsel uh, in this circumstance. They said, our parents have told us that they've gotten a revelation that they don't need to pay tithing and they don't need to attend church anymore. What do you think of that? And I said, well, I don't question your parents' revelation, but they got it from the wrong source. (laughs) So these positions by Elder Oaks
0: seem to be contradictory. Back in 2006, he seems to be saying, we teach the rules, but if you want an exception and you work it out with God, then that's fine. But now in 2017, at the Young Single Adult Face-to-Face Devotional, he's saying, I'm teaching you the rule about you need to go to church every week, And if you receive a revelation from God that's an exception to that rule, well, that's coming from the wrong source. And I will teach you the general rule that you need to pay tithing, but if you go to God and receive a revelation from God that you have an exception to that rule, then you're getting that revelation from the wrong source. You can see why it is that his positions on this seem to be contradictory. He's saying one thing in 2006 and another thing entirely in 2017. Another thing he doesn't go into detail on is, why is it that these parents feel that they have an exception to going to church? Is it about a medical condition? Are there some other factors involved that make it so it is difficult, if not impossible, for them to go to church, and therefore they've approached God in prayer and gotten a revelation that says you have an exception to this rule? No, it doesn't make any difference as far as his story goes. You go to church, that's the rule, no exceptions. If you think you got a revelation saying you don't have to, from the wrong source, not from God, Kings X. Same thing with tithing. We don't know anything about the details of these parents and their financial situation and why it is they felt they had an exception to the rule about paying tithing. No, that doesn't matter to Elder Oaks. The rule is you pay tithing. There are no exceptions. If you feel like you went to God and got an exception from God by direct revelation, then that revelation doesn't count because it's coming from the wrong source. Once again, King's X. Now, here we have Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks talking about how revelation comes through feelings. Joseph Smith, on the other hand, if we examine his statements and his words, never talked about how to try and distinguish feelings that come from God versus feelings that come from yourself. That was not in his worldview. He was not saying that members would not receive visions. He was not saying that members would not hear voices. He was not saying that members would not receive visitations. Rather, he was focused on the idea of how it was that members could tell a visitation that came from God, from a visitation that came from the devil. His entire worldview assumed that the members would be receiving revelation by virtue of visitation as well as by virtue of visions. Let me give you a few examples of that. Doctrine and Covenants section 129 is famous in this regard. It comes from some comments that Joseph Smith made in February of 1843 regarding keys by which the correct nature of ministering angels and spirits may be distinguished. I'm not going to read it all here. You can read it yourself. I expect that you're familiar with it. But it has to do with the fact that when an angel appears and identifies himself as being sent from God, then you can test the angel by offering your hand. And whether the angel will take your hand or not take your hand, or whether you feel anything when the angel shakes your hand, you can tell whether this is a true angel sent from God, whether it's a spirit or whether it is an evil spirit sent by the devil. In another place, Joseph Smith said that an angel of God does not have wings. We know this in the LDS Church. We even have famous pictures by famous artists being changed in order to take wings off angels for publication in the Enzyme. But this is where it comes from. It comes from a statement by Joseph Smith in order to be able to distinguish true angels from false angels. A false angel will have wings or could have wings. A true angel will not have wings. Here's what he says. An angel of God never has wings. Some will say that they have seen a spirit, that he offered them his hand, but they did not touch it. This is a lie. So he starts off with the idea that angels, true angels, do not have wings. And then he goes into this idea about shaking hands. You see, this didn't appear just in section 129 of the Doctrine and Covenants. He talks about this idea about shaking hands as early as 1839, which is where this quote comes from. Volume 3, History of the Church, page 392. You remember that the Doctrine and Covenants revelation is from 1843, four years later. But here's what he says in 1839. An angel of God never has wings. Some will say that they have seen a spirit, that he offered them his hand, but they did not touch it. This is a lie. So again, he's giving keys to discerning spirits that appear, whether they're true, whether they're false, whether they're from God, whether they're from the devil. First, he goes on, it is contrary to the plan of God. A spirit cannot come but in glory. An angel has flesh and bones. We see not their glory. The devil may appear as an angel of light. Ask God to reveal it. So here's another key. If you have someone who appears to you claiming to be an angel, ask God to reveal it. If it be of the devil, he will flee from you. If of God he will manifest himself or make it manifest. We may come to Jesus and ask him. He will know all about it. So here in eighteen thirty nine, Joseph Smith is giving multiple keys to how to discern beings that come representing themselves from God. In other words, angels appearing and saying they're from God. How do we know if it's from God? Well, do they have wings? Do they offer their hand? Did they come in glory? And if we're confused, we can ask God to reveal it. This whole worldview of Joseph Smith presumes the fact that members are going to be having angels appearing to them from time to time. He did not say, in response to the question about how do I get a testimony, well, you're not going to see visions and you're not going to hear voices, like Elder Ballard did in 2017. Another key that Joseph Smith gave in a different place was that an angel will not have sandy colored Here's what he said in April of 1842. This can be found in the History of the Church, Volume 4, page 581. There have also been ministering angels in the church. Well, that's a crazy thing for him to say. There sure aren't now, at least not according to Elder Ballard. He said there have also been ministering angels in the church, which were of Satan, appearing as an angel of light. A sister in the state of New York had a vision who said it was told her that if she would go to a certain place in the woods, an angel would appear to her. She went at the appointed time, and saw a glorious personage descending, arrayed in white, with sandy-colored hair. He commenced and told her to fear God, and said that her husband was called to do great things, but that he must not go more than 100 miles from home, or he would not return. Whereas God had called him to go to the ends of the earth. In other words, Joseph Smith is saying that he received the revelation, and that this man, her husband, should go more than 100 miles away from home, go to the ends of the earth. And, Joseph Smith continues, he has since been more than 1,000 miles from home and is yet alive. Many true things were spoken by this personage and many things that were false. How it may be asked, was this known to be a bad angel? That's his expression, a bad angel. And he answers, by the color of his hair. That is one of the signs that he can be known by. So an angel that appears who has sandy-colored hair, you can know right away, boom, that is a bad angel that's not from God, because obviously angels do not have sandy-colored hair any more than an angel would have wings. How simple is that? Additionally, Joseph Smith gives this key, and he was also known to be a bad angel by contradicting a former revelation. So not only do angels not have sandy-colored hair, they don't contradict former Revelations. Once again, this was part of the entire worldview that Joseph Smith was immersed in, giving all these keys to his followers to help them understand and know that among all the angels that are appearing to his followers, which are of God and which are not, and how they can tell the difference. Another thing that he said, another key that he gave, was how angels are dressed. Now, he doesn't go into specifics here. Once again, this is from 1843. This is History of the Church, Volume 5. Pages 267 through 268, Joseph Smith says this, A man came to me in Kirtland and told me he had seen an angel and described his dress. Now Joseph Smith doesn't say exactly what the dress is, so we are left to guess. But what he does say is this, I told him he had seen no angel and that there was no such dress in heaven. So apparently in heaven there is an honor code by which the angels must abide. And you can tell just by what an angel is wearing whether it is a true angel from God. Joseph Smith goes on and describes the man's reaction. He grew mad and went into the street and commanded fire to come down out of heaven to consume me. I laughed at him and said, you are one of Baal's prophets. Your God does not hear you. Jump up and cut yourself. And he commanded fire from heaven to consume my house, period. Which obviously did not happen. So this guy is a false prophet giving a story about a false angel, which Joseph Smith could identify was a false angel, or no angel at all, because the guy got the angel's dress wrong. This angel was not following the honor code. Therefore, either he did not see an angel at all, or he saw an angel that was coming from someplace where they don't have an honor code. Another thing that Joseph Smith said about visions is that you could tell a true vision from God from a false vision by whether it communicated information, whether it communicated intelligence, Joseph Smith's position was that if any of his members received a vision where no intelligence was communicated, it was not of God. That the only visions that God gave were to communicate intelligence to the person who received the vision. And here's one of the places where he said this in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, pages 203 to 204. Quote, Others frequently possess a spirit that will cause them to lie down, and during its operation, animation is frequently entirely suspended. They consider it to be the power of God, and a glorious manifestation from God. Then Joseph Smith asks, a manifestation of what? And here he gives another key. Is there any intelligence communicated? Are the curtains of heaven withdrawn, or the purposes of God developed? Have they seen and conversed with an angel, or have the glories of futurity burst upon their view? No, he says. But their body has been inanimate. The operation of their spirit suspended. These are people who are members of the church who believe that they're being acted upon by the spirit of God to make them insensate, which, you know, kind of sounds a lot like what happens in the Book of Mormon, where it is from God. But apparently when it's happening among the church in Joseph Smith's day, it's not from God. That's a little bit confusing, but that appears to be what he's saying. Okay, he says, no, but their body has been inanimate the operation of their spirits suspended and all the intelligence that can be obtained from them when they arise is a shout of glory or hallelujah or some incoherent expression but they have had the power so this is one example where joseph smith says that a vision or a spiritual manifestation that does not communicate intelligence or information is not from god and finally under this heading i want to talk briefly about the temple endowment because everybody who's been to the temple, and sometimes people who have not been to the temple, thanks to the internet, know that in the temple endowment, there are certain signs and tokens that are given to the people who attend the temple and who receive their endowment. It is part of the endowment session. Now, it is easy to think that the only reason for those signs and tokens is ultimately to pass by the angels who stand as sentinels and enter into the celestial kingdom. And apparently, that is one of the purposes of of those signs and tokens, at least according to Brigham Young in his famous quote. But in the context of the temple endowment, it is important to realize that those signs and tokens are given to people in the temple specifically for the purpose of being able to discern whether a messenger that claims to come from God is in fact from God. And you will recall the scene in which Adam meets Peter, James, and John who claim to be from God with the message from God to Adam. And Adam tests them to see if they have the name and the token. And once Peter gives Adam the correct name and token, Adam recognizes that they are indeed true messengers from God. Not only is this part of the temple endowment, Joseph Smith also said this outside the temple In 1841, May 1st, 1841, here is what he said. I preached in the grove. Now, the grove was the place next to where the temple was being erected in Nauvoo. It was an open place. It was typically where sermons were preached. It was outdoors. And here's what he said. I preached in the grove on the keys of the kingdom, charity, and etc. The keys are certain signs and words by which false spirits and personages may be detected from true which cannot be revealed to the elders till the temple is completed. So here Joseph Smith is saying that when the endowment is given, there are certain signs and words that will be part of the endowment in the temple, which can't be revealed until the temple is completed. But those signs and words will be given to the elders so that they can detect false spirits and personages from true spirits and personages. And that is one of the main purposes of giving these signs and words in the temple endowment. So, the reason I have gone through these different quotes from Joseph Smith is to make it clear that Joseph Smith's church assumed and expected and experienced members of the church having visitations from angels and spirits. So much so that time after time after time after time Joseph Smith gives keys to how to distinguish a true spirit from God or a true angel from God from a false spirit or a false angel. Which is very, very different from the current leadership of the church who are saying, You're not going to have visions. You're not going to hear voices. You're not going to have these kinds of visitations. Instead, personal revelation is just your feelings, and therefore what they've got to try and do in some way or another is try and be able to tell the members how to distinguish their personal feelings from the feelings that are coming from God. A very, very different scenario was occurring in the early church, and this is one of the ways in which it's obvious that the church that Joseph Smith founded is extremely different in fact, unrecognizable, from the Church today. Okay, so now that Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard have made it clear that the only revelation that we can receive as personal revelation is feelings, and the only feelings that count are the feelings that confirm that what they have told us is true, and that the rules they have given us must be followed, and that there are no exceptions, what is left to this entire issue about personal revelation? The church continues to teach everybody can receive personal revelation. You need to receive personal revelation. It's the foundation of the gospel. It's the church's lifeblood is personal revelation. But what's left to have personal revelation about? The leaders have already made it clear that doctrine is off limits. You do not get to receive any revelation about doctrine above and beyond what the church leaders have taught. And that revelation can only confirm that what they have taught is true. Really, when you boil it down, the only role that personal revelation has left in the church has nothing to do with the church, but only has to do with personal decisions that we make in our lives. Now, we know it's not just for minor personal decisions. We've been told on occasion that we're not supposed to seek revelation about what color curtains we're going to hang in the house, or what kind of furniture, or what kind of carpeting, that these are not things that we should be troubling God about. So we know that those kind of personal decisions are too small to get personal revelation on. So the kinds of questions that we're even allowed to approach God about to get personal revelation are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. Now one of the obvious ones that we might think remains in this diminishing category is who we should marry. We should be able to go to God to get revelation, to confirm, to lead us, whatever. In our choice of a spouse, we already know that that pool is limited, that it's got to be somebody who's faithful, magnifies callings, can take us to the temple because that's where we need to get married, who believes all the things that the LDS Church teaches. So that is a limited pool. But within that limited pool, we can get that revelation from God to confirm that that is the right person for us. But amazingly, Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks take revelation as to choosing who we're going to marry one of the few things that it might still apply to off the table later on in the presentation. What Elder Oaks does is he summarizes a message that had been given in a talk by Elder Bruce R. McConkie. And what Elder McConkie says is he did not use revelation to choose his wife. He just went with his gut instincts. In other words, He chose a wife the way pretty much everybody else chooses a wife. He didn't go to God. He didn't receive any confirmation. He simply chose a woman that
1: he thought would make a good wife for him. Play the tape. How do you choose a wife, he continued. I've heard a lot of people from Brigham Young University and elsewhere say, I've got to get a feeling of inspiration. I've got to get some revelation. I've got to fast and pray and get the Lord to manifest to me whom I should marry. I might just say, I've heard that again and again and again, that same thing. Listen to what he said at that point. Well, maybe it'll be a little shock to you, but never in my life did I ever ask the Lord whom I ought to marry. Elder Rose continues with his quote from Elder McConkie. Uh, it may be a, a great surprise to some of you that a highly respected apostle said he didn't wait around for the Lord to inspire to him who he ought to marry. And here is where Elder Oaks agrees with Elder McConkie. Some may
0: think that's extreme. I don't. Now, I have to believe that this is all done by some sort of design. Personal revelation now is nothing but feelings. It can only confirm what church leaders have said. It's not to be used for minor decisions in life, only for major decisions. One of the major personal decisions that we can make in life is who we're going to marry But now, apparently, we're not supposed to use Revelation to choose who we're going to marry. What else is left? What other major personal decisions are there that a member of the church has that they could possibly use personal Revelation to guide them? Well, there's only two that come to mind. One is what we're going to study in college, and number two is what career we're going to pursue. That's really pretty much it. And if you don't go to college, guess what? Two now becomes one, because you don't have to worry about finding out from God what it is you're supposed to study in college. Now you just have to worry about what you're going to do for a career. And if you're a woman in the church, you really don't have to bother asking God about what to do as a career, because that decision has already been made for you by the leaders of the church, if you know what I mean. And along this line, I think it is interesting that in General Conference of 2017, October priesthood session, President Eyring gave an example about a young man who came to him back when Elder Iring was a bishop. And the question that the young man asked him and wanted to get his counsel on and inspiration on and revelation on was not about a matter of doctrine. It was not about who he should marry. It certainly wasn't what curtains he should pick out. No. The specific question that Elder Iring said this young man came to him about was what he should study in college. This is all that is left for personal revelation. What should I study? What should I do for a living? Everything else has been taken away by the leaders of the church. And it was in that same talk by President Eyring that he said that the leaders of the church have the right to receive revelation and that the members of the church have the right to receive confirmatory revelation. So this isn't just Elder Oaks spouting off. This is what the church teaches. This is what President Eyring taught last October It is what Elder Oaks taught even more explicitly last November. So we can see that the LDS Church has, at least over the past 40 years, dumbed down the idea of miracles to the point where there are no more miracles in the Church. They're not even claimed in the Church anymore to be occurring on an ongoing basis, at least not specifically. And when they are specifically claimed, they either crumble under examination or they have to be retracted, as in the case of Elder Holland last summer. When it comes to priesthood blessings of healing, no longer do we hear any contemporary stories about healing. Rather, people who die are the ones who have the real faith, not the ones who get healed because nobody's getting healed out there, folks. And finally, when it comes down to revelation, personal revelation in the last 40 years has been dumbed down to the point where it is virtually non-existent. In fact, I will go so far as to say it is completely non-existent in the LDS Church, at least according to what the leaders want to grant to the members of the LDS Church. The leaders get all the revelation, although they don't really have any, and the members don't get any revelation unless it's to confirm that what the leaders tell them is true. And so, in conclusion, what we have in the LDS Church is a church that was founded upon the idea of personal revelation to its members. And to its leaders, but today in 2018 has demonstrated that the leaders receive no revelation and they do not allow the members to receive it either. And in this way, it reminds me almost exactly of what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Here's what he said to them But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men for ye neither go in yourselves neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in so here we have the leaders of the church who shut up the kingdom of heaven as far as revelation goes against the members for the leaders neither receive revelation themselves neither do they suffer the members that they should receive revelation either that's about all for tonight until next time this is radio free mormon signing off the air